Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, a weekly podcast from the Yiddish Book Center. My name is Sebastian Shulman, and this week I'm on the phone with Sasha Sendorovich, a rising scholar in the field of Soviet Jewish studies. This week we'll be talking about The Zelmin Yanez, a classic Yiddish novel by Moshe Kulbach, recently released in English translation by Hillel Halkin as part of the new Yiddish Library, the Yiddish Book Center's series of Yiddish literature in translation in partnership with Yale University Press. Sasha recently received his PhD in Slavic languages and literatures from Harvard University and is the author of this new translation's introduction and notes. Sasha, Burakhabo, welcome. Uh, welcome, thank you. <laughs> um, so, first of all, um, without giving any spoilers or, or too many spoilers, I was wondering if you could just give us a plot summary of the Zelmenyaners and talk briefly about its significance as a novel in Yiddish literature. Uh, good question, and it's quite difficult to do uh, to do a plot summary without too many spoilers, but I will try. Uh, so, for those of you who are familiar with Sholem Aleichem, Stevia the Dairyman, of course the classic uh, Yiddish novel, think of this as Stevia a decade, maybe not a decade, a generation later, multiplied by four. And what I mean by this is that this is a family novel, in which, uh, unlike in Tevye, when we have one nuclear family uh, that uh, goes through a period of change, depending on the changing historical circumstances in the Russian Empire around the time of a lot of upheaval uh, from the late 19th century into the first decade uh, of the 20th century, uh, here we have uh, a family that has four uncles, or fetters, uh, who are uh, each uh, have a family of their own. Uh, each has a wife. Um, in some cases, some of the wives have died. Uh, and each has children. Uh, and the setting is from the late 1920s into the mid-1930s in the Soviet Union. So this is a generation later than the conflicts that we saw in Tevye around the first Russian Revolution of 1905. Uh, into the period following the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, uh, with a lot more uh, families uh, or parts of families to uh, to exploit this uh, potential of different generations in the plot for comic uh, potential. Uh, so uh, this is kind of very abstract, uh, but uh, the the nuts and bolts of the plot are that we were starting out in a space. Uh, called Reb Zelmelis Courtyard, or Reb Zelmelis Hoif, uh, as the Yiddish would have it, uh, which is a, a courtyard of a family uh, where the buildings are arranged around uh, common space uh, on the outskirts of Minsk, on the outskirts, uh, sorry, outskirts of Minsk uh, in, uh, in Belarus, in Soviet Belarus, in the late 1920s. And this courtyard was established by the patriarch Reb Zelmele. Zelmele is the diminutive of the name Zalman. Uh, so the Zelmenianers are the progeny of Zelmele, uh, and that's the title of the novel. And at the time that we start the novel, Reb Zelmele has died uh, already. Uh, his wife is still around, quite old, and not quite understanding what the new changes are uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, and the four children of Reb the four uncles that I refer to, are these pillars of the family uh, that are in constant conflict with the generation of their children, 
uh, all of whom have come to maturity, or in some cases were born after the Bolshevik Revolution, mm. the uncles are older. So uh, we have a succession of challenges to the, uh, the structure of the family and the structure of the courtyard. Uh, part one, uh, which uh, was serialized uh, between the years 1929 and 1931 in Minsk and was published as a book in 1931 uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, takes us through uh, these radical changes that the Soviet regime introduces that have to do with modernization, uh, introduction of radio, the introduction of electricity, the introduction of literacy campaigns, all of these Soviet innovations that really challenge the soldier generation. Uh, and part two, which is serialized uh, 1933 to 1935 and published as a book in 1935, uh, also in the Soviet Union, uh, is a somewhat darker, uh, a darker part of the book where the humor is maybe somewhat more bitter, uh, where we're already in the sort of period of Stalinism, mm. where, uh, you know, it's becoming clear that this courtyard might not survive uh, as a structure under the weight of these changes. Uh, so uh, it's a very funny book uh, because of the kind of incongruities that exist between these, you know, mainly these two generations, uh, because one just simply doesn't speak in the language of the other. Uh, yet the, the humor, uh, you know, becomes uh, somewhat more dark uh, towards uh, the book's conclusion. Mm. So that's uh, a very, very kind of a, a basic sketch without uh, giving you too many details. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you for, for, for wetting our appetites, as it were. And I have to say, I, I have read the book. It was one of the first books. Um, I read in my advanced Yiddish class when I was first learning Yiddish, um, and is, an, is such an addictive read, uh, a really really a page turner um, in the Yiddish and in this translation. Um, so thank you for for further whetting our appetites about that. Um, so who was Moshe Kulbach, and and you know what gave him the sort of uh, life experiences, experience as a writer um, that enabled him to write this sort of Soviet. Uh, retelling of the Tevye story, this sort of Soviet uh, Jewish encounter with modernity? Uh, it's, a, it's a complicated question, uh, and uh, there are, have been other scholars who've worked on uh, other work by Kulbach. Uh, so Kulbach was born in 1896 in uh, the town of Smorhon, uh, which is presently in Belarus. Uh, but for the purposes of uh, his biography, it's part of the Jewish Lite, part of the Jewish Lithuania, which also includes present-day Belarusia. Uh, and uh, Smorhoin was kind of a funny place uh, that was known uh, in, in the area and in sort of much of lore uh, as the town of the so-called Bear Academy. Now, what, what A Bear Academy, what exactly does that yeah. mean? So that's, uh, uh, yes, I was about to explain that this was, um, uh, there was a, a Polish dynasty that uh, dominated the area, had established, a, 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 you know, a training, let's say, center for circus bears. Uh, so this kind of this weird, uh, this weird place uh, that the, uh, the Bear Academy had been closed by the time Kulbach was born, 
but the legacy of it still persisted uh, into 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 the time that he already uh, he lived there, uh, which uh, I think is something that maybe gave him uh, this sort of weird sense for the uh, you know a strength of nature, strength of the living world. Uh, bear is this uh, strong creature that you know has its own psychology that you know maybe uh, is you know tamed by humans but not fully mm. uh, and you see this in some of his work so uh Kulbach had come from the family of uh, people who lived there and it was a big family and they were people who uh were uh sort of close to the earth uh that they were employed in various professions that had to do something with uh sort of physical, you know, manual labor. So he uh, was known, and is you know, still known, as one of few Yiddish poets, at least in his day, who knew the words for different plants, for example. Mm. Right? Something that is, has been or had been up to that point a big criticism of Yiddish literature is uh, its lack of engagement with, uh, or the, the Kind of languages, lack of engagement with the living world around, mm. uh, and Kulbach is somebody who had sort of mastered this natural uh, idiom, uh, which you know is manifested in his poetry. He's mainly known as a poet, uh, and also in in his prose, including in the Zilminianers. And I'd be happy to talk about how exactly. Uh, and uh, what happens to him is that he uh, he moves around quite a bit. Uh, so he he's in Vilna uh before the first world war uh his family is evacuated from Smorgon to Minsk uh during the first world war mm. uh, because Smorgon is too close to the uh to the front line uh and uh he goes to stay with his family in Minsk uh, at the end of the first world war then he returns to Vilna then he goes to Berlin uh in where he spends three years between 1920 and 1923, uh, where he tries to study, but mainly is sort of uh, you know doesn't really have money to uh, to subsist in Berlin. And Berlin at this point is a major center of uh, lots of emigres, including mm-hmm. lots of emigre writers, uh, Yiddish writers, Hebrew writers, Russian writers, uh, lots of writers, lots of Jewish writers who are fleeing pogroms uh, of the Civil War uh, in uh, what used to be the Russian Empire's uh, western borderlands. Uh, and he kind of bums around uh, and uh, returns to Vilna in 1923, where he becomes uh, a very known teacher uh, in the in the school system. And, and Vilna has a following uh, and you know, by then is already known poet, uh, whose poetry is recited uh, on the streets of Vilna. Uh, and uh, in uh, 1928, uh, he goes to Minsk. He relocates from Vilna to Minsk. Now this is only four hours away uh, in uh, two days uh, travel time, mm-hmm. uh, four hours by bus. But he moves from what is now in the 1920s the Republic of Poland. 
uh, an independent state of Poland, uh, which was created after the First World War, uh, to uh, Minsk, which in 1928 is already the capital city of Soviet Belarusia, or Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic. Right. Uh, so he moves effectively from Poland to the Soviet Union, even though this move is very quick. Uh, his family is there, don't forget. They had been living there since the First World War. So one of the explanations is that he moves to join his family. Uh, uh, other people speculate that he uh, he was quite committed to uh, to socialist politics mm -hmm. uh, and the socialist vision, uh, and uh, quite enthusiastic by the state level support of Yiddish culture in Soviet Belarusia and in the Soviet Union. And the kind of fun fact is that uh, in in the 1920s and into the 1930s, Soviet Belarusia is the only place in the world where Yiddish is an official language. Uh, that is, in the Soviet Belarusia, there are four official languages, Russian, Belarusian, Polish, and Yiddish. Uh, so uh, there is a lot going on there. Uh, and uh, Kurbak is there uh, from 28, uh, and he works, uh, you know, he writes, he translates, uh, he translates Gogol's very famous Russian play called the Inspector General mm -hmm. or Revisor into Yiddish. Uh, he edits a translation of a classic socialist realist novel by Ostrovsky called How the Steel Was Tempered uh, and uh, a bunch of other things. Uh, and he uh, works... Uh, his day job from 1930 on uh, is as a stylistic editor at the Belarusian Academy of Sciences, uh, which has a Jewish department uh, that uh, undertakes a lot of ethnographic work at the time. Uh, and I can also speak about this more uh, later on. Uh, and, uh, you know, publishes works on this novel, uh, which is based uh, entirely around the events in Minsk. Mm -hmm. from the late 1920s into the 1930s, uh, kind of a fascinating uh, take on contemporary events and their literary contem literally contemporary events. Uh, if you read the novel side by side with the newspapers from the time, you see what he takes from the Daily Chronicle in Minsk uh, and what he turns into comic prose. Uh, and Kulbach is arrested in 1937 uh, and uh, on the charges of uh, espionage for Poland, mm -hmm. spying for Poland. Uh, and, you know, 1937 is a terrible year in, in Soviet history of many, many purges and many arrests uh, that uh, hits the Yiddish uh, circles in, in Minsk very hard uh, from 36 uh, onward. Um, uh, and he is executed uh, in the fall of 1937 uh, at the age of uh, uh, 41. Uh, so he is uh, in his uh, early 40s when he dies. Um, so this, his, his personal story seems to have a very tragic end. But but before this, his his. You know, his life experience is going from this very rural upbringing uh, in, into these urban environments in Vilna and in Minsk. His experience uh, on both sides of the Soviet border really seemed to have uh, had a profound impact on, and, and made him a, a really capable uh, documenter, a really capable uh, novelist of, of this historic episode that we see in the Zelmenyaners. 
Yes, absolutely. And, and this is a, a very important point that you bring up, uh, is that um, I believe that there's a kind of a, a tendency, given Soviet history, uh, and particularly the way that it's viewed uh, from the United States, to uh, have this tragic ending for so many writers, Yiddish writers, Russian writers, uh, dominate their life story. Um, so if you look even on the cover of this book, on the, on the back page, uh, you know, it brings up, uh, there's a four-line uh, bio of Moshe Kulbak, in the two lines of that, really three lines, has to do with his arrest and execution. Uh, somehow that dominates uh, our imagination disproportionately to the point where I think we do forget that uh, the lives that these people led were quite rich, very wrapped up uh, in many changes that they saw, uh, and in Kulbach's case, many movements between different uh, historical and political realities. Uh, and something like the Zelminyaner is an unbelievably rich uh, document of this history as it unfolds. Uh, when maybe, you know, it's hard to predict the end, uh, right? It's important for us as readers not to let the knowledge of the end overshadow this work uh, as, as something that is in progress. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think one wonderful illustration of, of you know, life as it's being lived is the humor in the novel. Um, and as a translator and uh, uh, myself and and being involved in our translation programs here at the center, um, humor is always something that is incredibly difficult to translate, incredibly difficult to convey, and yet it's an, an integral part of this novel. So could you speak a little bit about, of, uh, about how Kulbach uses humor in, in the novel in, in a bit more detail? I know you've talked about it briefly. Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. So um, uh, a major a major uh, way in which the humor is used in this novel has to do with the discrepancy, right? So I already talked about the generational discrepancy, uh, which means that you have people who do not understand each other uh, because they're of different age, and in this case, the different age also is really different upbringing. Uh, and the way that we see this is Kulbak playing around the Soviet uh, language. Uh, not even the Russian language. The novel has a lot of Russian in it, simply because of its setting, but this Russian is really Soviet. Uh, and that is the evolving language of political reality, daily life, uh, shaped very much by the Soviet experience, which has a lot of neologisms, uh, Soviet language, the Soviet speak, coins, uh, a lot of terms, which Kulbak brilliantly and often in very funny ways transposes into Yiddish. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so first of all, uh, uh, the uh, the space itself, Reb Zelmelis Hoif, uh, Reb Zelmelis Courtyard, um, becomes uh, you know it's shortened to Reb Zehoif, uh, which is you know all one word, uh, which uh, is something that is done by the younger generation in the novel, uh, very much in the fashion of creating acronyms. acronyms from uh, the first syllables of words. So the, the analogy would be something like Narkomfin in Russian, mm -hmm. uh, which is Narodny Komissariat Finances, the uh, People's Commissariat of Finance, which in plain language means, uh, means the Treasury Department right. or the Finance Ministry. Uh, so the space itself sort of is transformed by this language. Uh, another 
so another way in which he uses humor uh, is the way that you can pun on the multiple meanings of these words uh, and what they mean in different languages. So the Zelmenianers is the name by which the protagonists of the novel are known. However, that is not their last name. Their last name is Hvost. Uh, Hvost in Russian means tail. Uh, and uh, this term comes up, uh, you know, this, this word comes up, and, you know, we can say it's funny. You know, somebody's last name is Hvost, or a tail. Uh, but Kurbak does it very intentionally, uh, and that has to do with the political reality of the period in which he writes, in which there's a term, uh, namely Hvostism, uh, which comes from the word for tail, which roughly means uh, being uh, not at the forefront of production efforts. Meaning that if you work at a factory, for example, and you are a Soviet worker, you would want to fulfill the quotas for you know, production of X and Y very quickly, much quicker than you are required. And at that point, you become, uh, you know, you are at the front uh, of, uh, of, of this effort. However, if you lag behind, right, if you don't work nearly as hard, you become a chvastist. You are at the tail end. Uh, so at some point, there's a protagonist in this novel who is accused of chvastism. Uh, and the pun, of course, is that he is really a chvastist, right, because his last name is also Hvost. Right, right. So that becomes becomes funny but very poignant in a way that this is the humor is wrapped up with with politics. I mean, one of the things I love about this translation is that you do have all this wordplay, um, but but Hulkin is such a, a capable translator, and together with uh, the annotations you provide, um, this is you know you can read this fluently in English as well, and and still get get the jokes, get the humor, um, and it's it's just a wonderful read. Um, but um, one one other sort of device that that Kulbach uses, and and you've been hinting at this uh, quite quite a lot um, in his thick descriptions of of these characters and of their surroundings, um, is ethnography. Um, and I know you talk about this quite a bit um, in your introduction as well. Um, and uh, could you just give us something you know a very succinct flavor of how uh, Kulbach uses ethnography and ethnographic discourse in this novel? Uh, this is, this is a great question, uh, and you, you, I really kind of came to believe that this novel is a kind of mock ethnography, uh, kind of a parody of ethnography. Uh, uh, and here's why. So as I mentioned, Kulbach, uh, at the time that he writes the novel, or most of this novel, his day job is editing uh, the publications, the sort of scholarly publications of the Jewish Department of the uh, Belarusian Academy of Sciences. And at the time, they are very interested in studying Jews ethnographically, uh, studying Jews in the shteplach. Uh, and uh, a common, again, a common misconception in particularly American Jewish understanding of the concept of the shtetl is that the shtetl is gone by the time the revolution happens. But it isn't gone. Uh, it very much persists into the 1920s and the 1930s and onward. Uh, there is wonderful work being done now uh, by folks at Indiana, for example, uh, of shtetl ethnographies of the Soviet period and speaking to people who have grown up in, in shtetls who are quite old now but, but are still around. Um, so 
they undertake uh, this ethnographic work to understand how to turn the Jewish population in the shtetl from uh, kind of a, you know, professions that aren't useful in the Soviet context. You know, they're middlemen, you know, they do all these things that don't, you know, they can't exist in the economic conditions of the Soviet state, and to turn them towards productive professions. So to do that, they need to understand how uh, how this functions. Uh, and uh, there is a very famous pamphlet that the, the, the Belarusian Academy of Sciences publishes in 1928 called Researcher Shtetl, which is kind of a call on amateur ethnographers, just sort of young people uh, who live in the Shtetlach, to go and record, uh, you know, collect ethnographic material, record the language uh, in which people speak of their native shtetl. Uh, so the novel uh, gives us a pr- one of the protagonists who he isn't quite a central protagonist because the novel doesn't really have a central protagonist, but as close as we come to kind of an intellectual and emotional center of the work, uh, we have a, a young man, Tzalel, or Tzalke, as uh, he's known by his nickname, uh, which is, comes from Bitzalel. Uh, and uh, Tzalke is of the younger generation, so he should, in theory, be somebody who, like his you know, cousins and siblings, quite enthusiastic about the revolution. Tzalke, however, is this kind of ethnographer who uh, collects uh, examples of old language. He walks around with a notebook recording the way that his old grandmother speaks. Uh, He records the language spoken by, let's say, butchers at the market. Uh, He collects odds and ends of the courtyard and tries to interpret them. So in part two of the novel, we have a chapter that he authors called the Zalminayat, or Zalminyade in in Yiddish, uh, which if you read it, it reads like an ethnographic study of the courtyard. It's very funny uh, because, in part, it really parodies some of these official Soviet ethnographers mm. of Jews. Uh, but besides, um, besides the uh, Tsalke as as the ethnographer in the novel, the novel as a whole uh, has an incredible attention to collecting these odds and ends uh, of. Uh, a Jewish experience that is going through radical transformation. So I'll give you one example of what Kulbach does uh, as somebody who himself is aware of this ethnographic language. Uh, And what he does is he, in addition to the plot where we have kinds of new descriptions of things as they're going through periods of change, the language itself is absolutely brilliant uh, in uh, creating uh, a sense of the surroundings where certain things that are being referred to no longer exist uh, in the world to which they refer, but exist only in language. Mm. So there is a, a chapter close to the beginning of the novel, uh, which, you know, is very funny. Uh, and, you know, it's funny, again, if you've read, you know, for those who've read Tevye, we know that the major challenge for Tevye is the way that his daughters decide to get married. Mm, of course. Right, so that's something which has become, by now, by the time Kulbach writes, it's a very recognizable pattern, 
you know, it's a plot element through which you can explore this generational conflict. So here in Kulbach, we have uh, one of the protagonists, Bere, the policeman, uh, who decides to get married to his second cousin. Uh, and, you know, Bere is, you know, going through this, trying to, you know, transition, trying to become more of a Soviet ideologue. So he cannot have a Jewish wedding. Uh, you know, that's just not something that he's going to do. Uh, so the couple goes to the marriage bureau, to Zaks, uh, in Russian, to this kind of registry, uh, where they simply, you know, get married uh, without, you know, by civil ceremony, uh, without any sort of religious ceremony. So, of course, the courtyard, all of the older generation gets very upset. So uh, the bride's father, Uncle Yude, picks up his violin, and he starts playing. And as he plays, the music, and I'm trying to kind of summarize the translation, uh, and, and the original also is uh, meant to signify that there are musicians playing at his daughter's wedding. Mm. Uh, and this is, of course, both funny and very sad, because there are no musicians playing at the wedding, uh, but this, you know, him playing the violin is supposed to signify something which used to be a practice, would have been a practice, had this couple decided to get married by, by Jewish custom. Right. And even more specifically, in terms of language, he then goes on to play and starts remembering his wife, who had died during the First World War in a, in a bombardment. Uh, and he feels very sad uh, uh, literally, that she was not, uh, you know, kind of lucky enough, she wasn't privileged to live to see her daughter go under the wedding canopy. Uh, and the tragedy here is, of course, that there is no canopy, there is no chupa, there is uh, no uh, traditional wedding that her daughter is now going through, but the way that the language idiomatically constructs this reality preserves a custom that isn't practiced anymore, mm. right? So they, the language in the novel is full of these, um, uh, you know, empty signifiers, these empty, these words and phrases and idioms that reference something that doesn't exist anymore. So you get a sense of this as a kind of ethnographic project, more specifically kind of salvage. Mm, mm, fascinating. Right. Something that you can record as it had been up until that point, but isn't anymore. Right. So, <laughs> so clearly this, this, this work, this text, it was not just an academic project for you. It's something that uh, clearly you enjoyed. It had, had a personal impact on you. Um, how did you first encounter this text? How did you first encounter the Zelman Yannit? Uh, thank you for the question. I first read it uh, a while ago uh, when I was a junior in college, which would have been 2001, 2002. I spent a year in Oxford. Uh, sort of reading uh, courses, reading uh, Jewish history, some of Jewish literature was before I knew Yiddish. Uh, so one of my tutorials with, was with uh, uh, Joseph Sherman of Blessed Memory, uh, who had just gotten to Oxford from, uh, from South Africa. And Joseph was very enthusiastic about 
Soviet Yiddish literature in general, and had given me the abridged translation of the Zelminyaners uh, from the 1970s by Nathan Halper in a volume called Ashes Out of Hope, uh, edited by uh, Howen Greenberg. Uh, and in part, he wanted me to read it with him, and again, I couldn't read Yiddish then, to uh, help him understand some of the jokes. Uh, uh, kind of look, turn, turning to me as a potentially useful native informant who could figure out what Kulbak may have meant in Soviet right, mm-hmm. or, or in Russian. Right. So these Oxford tutorials are supposed to be the things where you write a paper, a 10-page paper every week, you turn up and you speak for an hour to your professor, uh, kind of read the paper aloud, and then they give you comments. Uh, with Joseph, this was very different. Uh, he would take me down to the basement of the Oriental Institute at Oxford, uh, to the cafeteria where he could smoke, <laughs> he couldn't smoke in his office, and we'd talk for two hours, three hours, sometimes longer. Uh, so this was the first encounter with this work, which I really appreciated. Kind of, you ask me kind of for the, the, the way that I personally relate to this work. Uh, I, over the, this period of working with this, uh, uh, with this novel closely uh, and, and tracing this kind of evolution, uh, came to believe that uh, there is a way for us to look at it differently from how we might read it initially. Mm. And initially, we might read it as a novel about disintegration. Uh, We might read it as a novel about the disintegration of a traditional Jewish family that is torn asunder by these uh, Soviet circumstances, circumstances of Soviet modernity. Uh, And you know, not to give you too many spoilers, but not all members of the families would survive until the end of the novel uh, for various reasons, some of which are quite terrible. Uh, And uh, the courtyard itself uh, will not survive uh, because it will be overtaken by the growing city. Uh, The city of Minsk will expand, uh, will modernize, will build a new infrastructure, and will eventually swallow the space. Uh, so there's a very easy way in which you could see that this is the end uh, of of Jewish culture in the Soviet Union, uh, and and that's how we relate to it. However, there's a way I believe for us to look at this novel itself as a kind of space of negotiation of what is Jewish and what is Soviet, mm. and to see in this a process of evolution by which Soviet Jewish emerges something which is a hybrid. Uh, And that hybrid uh, is something which does inform subsequent decades of the Soviet Jewish experience and of Soviet Jewish culture. So, uh, you know, for example, if we think of the space of the courtyard, which disappears at the end of this novel, reemerges later in the Soviet period. Uh, You know, we have a a wonderful play by Friedrich Gerinstein in Russian, full of Yiddish, uh, during the stagnation era, so the 1970s, called Birdichev, uh, you know, set, you know, in Ukraine, northern Belarus, uh, you know, t- takes place after the war, uh, where, you know, th- th- there's still a very familiar uh, kind of community that resembles you know, the the experience that Kurbach describes in the 1930s and the Zemanyaners, 
but much later in the Soviet period. Uh, there are other works by Russian writers which look at spaces like these uh, in much later decades in the Soviet context. Mm. And uh, anecdotally, and again, the reason that this is so hard to uh, describe precisely is because this experience varies for uh, most Jews who had grown up in the Soviet Union. Uh, the novel ends with the uh, family having to relocate to uh, different apartments uh, because the courtyard uh, is being destroyed to make way for a factory. Uh, and they move to the spaces, they disperse into new construction, and they take their things with them. So one of the things that somebody unscrews from the entryway is a mezuzah. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen to it. Will they put it back on into their apartment? The Soviet experience will tell us that they won't. Right, because this kind of um, uh, uh, observance of, of Jewishness as Judaism, as a religious practice, really uh, isn't there very much uh, in the Soviet period. Uh, but anecdotally, and this is where my family story picks up, and probably many other people's own versions of the story also pick up. Mm. I, for instance, grew up uh, you know, with my grandfather, who was born in 1920, so he was the age of these children, of the children's generation, right. the Zelmanianers, uh, who, uh, when he went to fight in the war in 1941 as a Soviet soldier in the Red Army, his grandfather, uh, who had been a moil, uh, gave him a mezuzah to wrap, you know, he wrapped it in a handkerchief mm. and essentially carried it with him through the war as an amulet. Wow. Right, so this is not wow. Judaism, right? This is not, this mezuzah is not on the door to anything, right? It becomes a completely different practice. And my grandfather, after the war, had preserved this custom. So he would carry this mezuzah to work in, his, in the pocket of his, of his suit. He'd come home to work and put it under his bed at night every day. Uh, and when I and the other grandchildren came to visit, he would take it from under the bed and would give it to us to kiss from his hand. Mm. So, and later when I had started learning about Judaism, I asked him, why don't you put it on the door? Because you can now. But this is kind of a meaningless question, because over time, uh, this mezuzah became a different kind of ritual. It became a very different kind of observance which was Soviet Jewish, right? Very idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, not Jewish by any external factors, uh, because it doesn't do what one is supposed to do uh, in the context of Judaism as a religious uh, culture. Uh, but over time, and this is one of many stories that uh, many different people can tell very differently, uh, it influences somebody like me, uh, who is of a much younger generation, uh, in this very idiosyncratic understanding of what is Jewish, and in my own sense that, yes, of course I am Jewish, Jewish in a very particular way. So when I look at a novel like the Zelmanianers that does these, you know, this brilliantly preserving this context, uh, it's there for me to engage with, uh, for me as a reader, uh, to understand something uh, as it was preserved on the verge of its transformation, uh, and to understand that it may have had a very different legacy through these years of the Soviet period when, you know, 
Judaism wouldn't have been something that my relatives would have practiced. Uh, but hadn't necessarily, but didn't necessarily disappear. Well, thank you so much. That That is absolutely just a fascinating look. This whole conversation has just been eye-opening in so many ways, and I encourage everyone, um, you can get the Zelmanyana, it is a new uh, English translation uh, from Amazon, from your local bookstore, or right here at the Yiddish Book Center through um, our online bookstore. A shenem dank, Sasha. That that was just wonderful. Uh, thank you very much to you. Shenem dank. Nishtofavos. You've been listening to a podcast from the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For additional interviews and conversations, please visit yiddishbookcenter.org/audio. Our producer is Agnieszka Ilvitska. I'm Sebastian Schulman. Seid mir gesinnt und stark. Be well, be strong, and tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.